following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, we're in this uh, series in the book of Exodus, uh, our main teaching series for the year. And uh, at the moment, we're right in the middle of the book, uh, in the central chapter, really the climactic chapter of Exodus, which is the Israelites at Mount Sinai. <coughs> Excuse me. So everything before this has been the journey of the Israelites from Egypt out across the desert to this mountain. Everything after this is going to be the law and the construction of the tabernacle, and we'll look at bits and pieces of that over the next few months. But this is really the pivotal chapter now. Hamish started us on this last week, uh, Exodus 19, uh, as the Israelites arrived at Sinai. This is the point where Israel transitions from being a family to a nation. This is where they move from being just a, a confederacy of tribes to being constituted as a nation by God, and God enters into covenant with Israel, gives them his laws, and they become his people uniquely and distinctly. So this is a very special moment, and something incredibly significant happens here as God reveals his presence to Israel. Now, Mount Sinai is a real mountain. It really exists. It's in Egypt uh, these days. Nobody's quite sure if the, the Mount Sinai that exists today is the exact same Mount Sinai that Moses went up and the Israelites gathered in front of. It could be, it may not be, but if it's not the same one, uh, Mount Sinai would be some other mountain in that area. We know this is the general area where the Israelites camped out and where Mount Sinai was. So you can go to Mount Sinai today, you can climb up Mount Sinai today. It's about 2,000 meters. It takes about two and a half hours to get to the summit. Pretty awesome views from the top over this whole desert mountain range, the Sinai mountain range. Uh, but spare a thought for Moses here because Moses was an 80-year-old man. And he had to get to the top of Mount, Summit, uh, Mount Sinai, not just once, but seven times. Up and down, seven times, over the course of the year that Israel camped out at Mount Sinai. He's an 80-year-old man. There was no track. There was no path. There was no guide. He just had to climb his way to the top. So that's a lot to ask of an 80-year-old man. But that's, that was Moses' experience here at Mount Sinai. Of course, what's significant is not the mountain uh, God could have chosen any mountain. He could have chosen any rock, any, any piece of dirt. What is significant is what God chose to do here and how he used this place to reveal himself to Israel. So God calls Moses up to the mountain, top of the mountain, and he says, Moses, in three days' time, I'm going to do something incredible. I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to manifest my presence to Israel. I'm going to reveal who I am to them in glory and power. Uh, but you need to get Israel ready for this. You need to get the people ready. You need to put limits around the mountain. Because if anybody tries to approach the mountain too close, if anyone touches the actual mountain, if anyone tries to ascend the mountain, uh, the, literally the text says God will break out against them and they will be put to death. So there's incredibly serious consequences for anyone who tried to touch this mountain. Moses had to go down and put some kind of fence or some kind of barrier around the mountain to put some boundary markers to show the spot that the Israelites could come to this point but couldn't go right up to the mountain. God's very, very clear about this, and he comes back to that point several times. The Israelites can't get too close. So Moses goes down and he prepares the people, and then on the third day, it happens. 
And, and just try, just try as I'm describing this to imagine what this might have been like for the experience of the Israelites waking up that morning. You come out of your tent and there's a huge storm going on around Mount Sinai. You look up at this incredible mountain, this huge mountain, and it's shrouded in fog, in thick, dense darkness. It's surrounded by cloud. You see lightning. You hear thunder. You hear the sound of a ram's horn, this kind of trumpet sound. No one's making the trumpet sound. God is creating that. And Moses assembles the Israelites, clan by clan, tribe by tribe, and he leads them out of their camp, which was a fair way from Mount Sinai, right to the base of the mountain itself. And as the Israelites get closer, the thunder and the lightning are getting more severe. The ram's horn is getting louder and louder and louder until it's a piercing sound in their ears. The cloud is getting darker and gloomier and the ground underneath them is shaking because the whole mountain is quaking. The mountain itself is trembling. So the, the, the very ground they're standing on is, is uneven. And then as they get to the foot of the mountain and they're looking up, they see smoke billowing out of Mount Sinai. They don't actually see the fire, but they see smoke. So this would have looked to them like a volcanic eruption. And they're not standing at a safe distance. They're standing at the base of the mountain. They're standing there as smoke is pouring out of this thing and thunder and lightning and earthquake and the ram's horn. And they would genuinely have wondered if they were going to make it out of this alive. They were fearful for their lives. They begged Moses, don't let God speak to us because we will surely die. They were utterly terrified of the presence of God and rightly so. They trembled. They trembled because they were encountering the holy presence of a holy God. This was a multi-sensory experience for the Israelites. They heard the ram's horn. They heard the thunder. They saw the lightning. They smelt the smoke. They felt the earth quake underneath them. Every part of their being was apprehended by what was going on, and this must have been overwhelming for them. Now, to try and get inside this experience a little bit, try and unpack the significance of what's going on here. Think about some of these natural phenomena that occurred at Sinai. Think about where you've seen them before or heard them before. Think about the cloud that's enveloping the mountain and the fire. Where have you seen cloud and fire before in Exodus? God's presence guiding the Israelites, right? The pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, day and night. God's already been guiding Israel by fire and cloud ever since they left Egypt. That's been the sign of his presence, leading and guiding the people so they know how to get to Mount Sinai. And now, as they arrive at Mount Sinai, the fire and the cloud descend down onto the mountain. So God's presence, in a sense, descends down from heaven to earth. Not all the way, not right down to ground level, but to the, to the mountain itself. What does this represent? God is moving toward his people. God's inclination is to descend down to be among his people, not to be distant, not to be away, not to be removed, but to be with and among his people, to descend down as far as possible to be with them. What we're seeing in one sense here is Emmanuel, God with us. Even though this is terrifying for the Israelites, even though this is frightening, that the message underneath is actually incredibly encouraging, that God is moving towards humanity. God didn't do this. Most of the other ancient deities, they just stayed at a distance. They weren't particularly concerned about human affairs. They just were off in their own world, but not Yahweh. He wants to be with his people. He's doing everything he can constantly to move towards his people. He's descending down and down and down onto the mountain to be with them and to be among them. 
And yet, it's going to be a lot of and yets in this sermon. And yet, there's still this incredible distance. God's moving towards Israel, but they are separated from Him. They can't touch the mountain. They can't ascend the mountain. They can't even see the presence of God. The closest you get in Exodus 19 to to the presence of God Himself is the fire. God descends on the mountain in fire, but the Israelites never see the fire. They see the smoke, but they never see the fire. So God's presence itself is still hidden from the Israelites. It's still shrouded in fog and smoke, and they can't quite apprehend the presence of God. And this takes us to the heart of what Sinai is communicating, that the Israelites encounter the presence of God's holiness. And it is His holiness that prevents them from being able to get too close. They're seeing the power, they're seeing the splendor and the majesty and the might of God. They are seeing His holiness and they are learning that the same God who's just said, I've carried you on eagle's wings, the same God of compassion, the God of tenderness, the God who loves them and who's liberated them from Egypt, that God is also a holy God. This is what Yahweh is showing them, that He is holy. So what does it mean to say that God is holy? What does Mount Sinai really reveal about the character of God? What do we think when we, when we say God is holy? What are we saying? Often you think about that word in, in a way that is very moral. If you say someone is holy, what are you saying? You're, you're saying they're, they're, a, they're a righteous person. They're a very pious person. If you call someone holy, they're a very, very holy person. They're kind of a godly person. They have good Christian character. We generally think about holiness in those kinds of moral, ethical categories. And so we sort of imagine... I don't know whether this is how you think about it, but many people, I think, imagine a a continuum, kind of like a holiness continuum. So at one end, you've got God, uh, and He would be the most holy being that exists. He'd be right down that end of the spectrum, the most holy being. And then next holy would be who, maybe? Uh, The Archangel Gabriel. Then the angels, maybe, next holy beings. And then down to human beings, who's the most holy person you know? You might slot them in there. And then holy people all the way down, all the way down. So you've got a whole continuum, like this holiness hierarchy that we create in our minds. And we think of God being at that end. The problem is God's not on that continuum. Even if there is one, even if it exists in your mind, God's not on it. He's not on your spectrum. He's not on your continuum. He's in his own spectrum. You see, the best word to think about holiness is not perfect it's other to say that god is holy means that we are saying that he is other he is other than us he is other than creation he's other than humanity and anything that he has made we are the created and he is other than that maybe a better image to use is that just think very simply about two categories and one category is every single created thing humans animals earth heaven in terms of the sky itself, every angels, demons, Satan, everything's in that category. And that category is simply called that which is not God. And then in the other category, and I mean other not in the sense that we kind of say miscellaneous other, but other in that he is uncreated, there is only one person, only one being, and that is God. He is in his own sphere. He is in his own category. He's not on our continuum or our spectrum. He is other 
God is holy. This is what he's demonstrating at Mount Sinai, that he is beyond us in every possible sense. He is transcendent of us in every imaginable sense. As soon as, this is why the sermon is literally impossible to preach, because as soon as I start trying to give you words to think about God, I've failed. Because he's beyond, if human language could get us there, he wouldn't be holy. He wouldn't be other than human language, but he is other than that. As soon as you start using superlatives to describe God, you've already failed because he's beyond any word that you pull out of your head to try and describe him. Even if I tell you, try and imagine who God is, just think about it, think about a holy God, conjure up the image of who you think God is and all of his holiness, even that exercise is doomed to fail before it starts. Because if we could picture God, he wouldn't be holy. He is other than our imagination. He is other than our mental conceptions of who he is. You can't just take something that you think is kind of relatively holy, elevate it to an infinite degree, and assume you've arrived at God. You haven't. He is other. He is absolutely incomprehensible. He is inexplicable. He is inconceivable. Scripture says no mind has known, no eye has seen, no ear has heard whom God is. We cannot fathom him. He is utterly indescribable. He is Yahweh. He is holy. He is other. That is the God whom Israel encountered at Sinai. That is the God before whom Israel trembled. So, you have this picture of a God who desires to come and be with his people, who's descending down, and yet there's this uncrossable chasm because a holy God cannot connect with a very unholy people. So there's distance. And this opens up the space in which we can talk about the role of Moses, who is the mediator. That's who Moses is in the story of Israel. And you see it right here. He's literally moving between God and people all the time. He's up and down the mountain seven times. Stays on the summit of the mountain 40 days one time. He's, he's brokering this relationship between God and people. He's talking to God on behalf of the people. He's talking to the people on behalf of God. He's representing one to the other. He stands in the gap between Israel and God. And one of the critical roles that Moses plays in this story is to consecrate the people before God. Just have a look at verse 14 there. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them. Now, literally that word consecrated, it's the same from the same Hebrew word as holy. It's from the same root word. So literally you could translate that, he made them holy. Moses made the people holy. Now, how is that possible? We've just talked about how God's the only one who's holy. And now Moses comes along and he makes the people holy. The only way that Moses made the Israelites holy in this sense was in a symbolic kind of way, in a ceremonial. He didn't make them truly holy in essence. He didn't make them truly holy in, 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 on the inside. He made them holy in a symbolic way, at least enough to encounter the presence of God. So in, in this case, in the case of the Israelites, that involved two things, washing their clothes and abstaining from sex. Probably not the two things you'd tell people today if they asked you how they could be holy, right? But this is what it meant for the Israelites to be holy because it represented them being set apart. Set apart in the sense of purity, set in the part, apart in the sense of abstaining from normal activity. That's, that's what's being represented there. And so in a symbolic way, in a ceremonial way, in a ritualistic kind of way, the Israelites are then prepared enough to encounter the presence of God. 
but not fully. They still have to stay at the base of the mountain and they still can't see the presence of God. Now, all of this, you can already hear the echoes, can't you? All of this prepares us for the story of Jesus. All of this prepares us for the gospel. That the whole scene at Sinai is there in the, in the context of the biblical story to shed light on what happened through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is an incredible backdrop to looking at the person and the work of Jesus of Nazareth. Because Jesus came to earth as the embodiment of God's holiness. So Jesus was full of the holiness of God. He, he was the same God, the same being as Yahweh, who revealed himself on Mount Sinai. Jesus held that holiness within himself. In him, the fullness of deity dwells, is what Scripture says. So Jesus is holiness walking around. He's the holy God of Israel, walking around the dusty streets of Palestine. But he's allowing himself to be touched by people. He's letting a prostitute pour perfume on his feet and, and wipe his feet with her tears. He's reaching out and touching people with leprosy and other diseases. He's crossing social taboos and social boundaries and dividing lines. And he's meeting with tax collectors and sinners and drunkards and gluttons and all manner of people that were considered inferior and marginalized and powerless. Jesus is moving toward them fully without compromising his holiness. And then on the cross, Jesus takes up the role of Moses as our mediator. This is the heart of the story. It's the heart of the gospel. So that Jesus becomes the mediator between you and God in a way far greater than Moses. By taking our sin upon himself, by paying for our sin and absorbing it, Jesus became the mediator between humanity and God and he made us holy. That's what Jesus has done for you. If you belong to him, if you're united with him, he makes you holy. Now, how is that possible? You, you could possibly get your, your head around the idea that the Israelites were made holy in a symbolic way, but Jesus does far more. He makes us holy truly on the inside. He purges our conscience. He cleanses us. He renews our hearts, gives us a clean heart, makes us totally and completely holy before God. The only way that's possible is if Jesus gives us his own holiness. The only way that's possible is if we share in the holiness of Jesus himself. Holiness is not like a commodity that you can just give to someone. It's not like a certificate that Jesus gives you to say, you are now holy, you can hold the certificate up in assembly, everyone's going to know you're holy. It doesn't work like that. Holiness is something that is intrinsic to persons. And the only way that Jesus can make us holy is by inviting us into his own holiness. This is what happens when a person becomes a Christian, is that Jesus says, I want your life now to be wrapped up in my life. I'm not just going to confer some status on you. I'm going to invite your whole identity to be absorbed into my whole identity. You're going to live in me. I'm going to live in you. Our lives are now hidden in Christ with God. It's no longer I that live. It's Christ living in me. It's me living in Christ. When you become a Christian, you put on Christ like a big garment. You put on Jesus like a great big garment, and you are now wrapped up in him. Your identity swallowed up in his identity. That means if you belong to Jesus, everything he has is yours. His life is your life. His death is your death. His resurrection is your resurrection. His place in heaven before the Father is your place in heaven before the Father. His inheritance in the future is your inheritance in the future. Everything he's done is yours. Everything he is is yours. Everything he will receive will be yours. 
including his holiness. We share in the holiness of Christ because our identity is now in him. We are wrapped up in his holiness. So when God the Father looks at you, what does he see? He sees Jesus. He doesn't even just see some person who's been made holiness or given the stuff called holiness. He looks at you and he sees the son he loves because you're wrapped up in Jesus. He looks at you and he delights in you like he delights in Jesus. He looks at you with the same favor and tenderness that he looks at his own son, Jesus, because we are now in the son he loves. And so Jesus, because of that, leads us not only to the foot of the mountain, he leads us all the way up, all the way to the summit, and even further, he leads us right into the very fire of the presence of God because we are wrapped up in the asbestos of Christ, so to speak, and we can withstand the fire of the presence of God because we are wrapped up in Jesus. We're so consumed in Christ now that we get to share in this intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. The love that's flowing back and forth between Father and Son, we get to share in it now because we're in Jesus. We share in the Son's relationship with the Father by the Spirit. That's how personal it gets for us now. That's how intimate. We get to address God as Abba, Father. Same word that Jesus used to address God, the Father. His relationship with God is now our relationship with God because we are in Him. That's what it means to be made holy. And that's an accomplished fact for you if you're a Christian. That's an accomplished reality for you because of Jesus' death on the cross. If you're united to Jesus, if your sins are forgiven, that's who you are, holy before a righteous and holy God. You're wrapped up in Christ. Even on your worst days, that's true, right? Even on the days, maybe it's today, when you've messed up and stuffed up and screwed up and just heinously sinned and you're just in your flesh, you're still holy before God because you are in Christ. Nothing's going to change that. You are in Christ. You have been made holy. Past reality, accomplished fact. That's the joy and the blessing that we have as Christians. So in a sense, we've come a long way from Sinai, haven't we? In, in one sense, we're not where Israel was because there was such distance for them. They couldn't see, apprehend the presence of God. They had to stay so far back. But we're not in their shoes anymore, so to speak. We're in a different place. We're in a different space. And the Bible draws this out beautifully. I want to read to you a passage that references Mount Sinai in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12. A couple of paragraphs, and it, it, it describes the journey that we've gone on now, if we're united to Jesus, the journey that we've gone on from Mount Sinai onwards to this new place of intimacy and personal relationship with God. In Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom and storm. That's, it's all a reference to Mount Sinai. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But now here's our space. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, 
to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's good news, right? That's where we are because of Jesus. No longer at Mount Sinai, we've now come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the mountain on which Jerusalem sits. It's the mountain on which Jesus died. Mount Zion is the mountain of the cross. And the cross calls us near. Because of the cross, we can come near to God. And we can have fellowship and we can have intimacy with Him. Hebrews, the same book, says that because of Christ, we can now come into the presence of God boldly. We can come into the presence of God with confidence now because of Jesus and receive mercy and receive grace to help us in our time of need. We can do that not because there's anything deserving in us, not because an ounce of holiness in us, in and of ourselves, but all because we share in the holiness of Jesus who's lived for us and died for us and been raised for us. His holiness secures our place before God the Father. And yet... God is still holy. There's no longer distance between us and God, and yet God is still holy. And the God that we've come together to worship today is the same God who revealed himself to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. God hasn't changed. We've been made holy, but God hasn't changed. In fact, as we come together as a church, the word church in the New Testament, it means gathered ones or called out ones. It's partly based on the gathering of Israel at Mount Sinai. There's a direct link there. That as we gather today, in a sense, we're not like the Israelites because there's no longer distance, but in another sense, we are because we are meeting and communing with the same holy God. And because Yahweh is here and we are here to worship Him, we also must learn to tremble. We've got to learn to tremble in the presence of a holy God. When we worship God and we sing these songs and we take communion, if you're, if you're just sitting there or standing there just disengaged and you're not interested, you're just mouthing the words of the songs, you can't really be bothered and you're just distracted, you are mocking the holiness of God. It's not about the band, it's not about me, it's not about the worship leader, it's about God who invites you to worship. If, if, if your heart is just a million miles from Him and you just can't be bothered doing that and you just drift in and drift out, you are belittling the presence of the Holy God. Can you imagine the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai just kind of chatting with each other, fiddling with their bulletins and mouthing the words of the songs? They didn't sing any songs, but you know what I mean. When we act, and look, we all do sometimes, right? We all do. But when that happens, we are treading lightly, taking too lightly, the presence of God among us. We dare not be flippant with God. We dare not be casual with God. We dare not be frivolous with God. He is the Holy One of Israel, and His presence is here. And he calls for our worship. He calls us to worship him acceptably with reverence and with awe because God is a consuming fire.
So we've got to learn to tremble before God. Now, it's not easy for us. We don't stand at the foot of Mount Sinai. Maybe if we had all the pyrotechnics, maybe it would be easier for us. But even then, even if we could turn on the thunder and the lightning and the cloud, we'd, we'd never get anywhere near what the Israelites actually experienced at Sinai. It's not easy for us. We meet in a gym. We, got, we look up at two screens and a scoreboard. It's not exactly awe-inspiring stuff, all right? It's not easy to access the holiness of God. That's why we've got to be intentional about it, and we've got to soak our hearts in passages like Exodus 19 that call us back to who God is. We've got to remind ourselves of whose presence it is that we come into when we come into these gatherings, and who it is that we're saying is great and holy when we sing these songs. We've got to soak our hearts in passages like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw the glory of God, the holiness of God, and said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord of heaven. We've got to soak our hearts in passages like Revelation 4 and 5 in the heavenly throne room, the angels, the elders, all creation, bowing down, falling on their faces before God. They can't even stand on their feet in the presence of God. They just fall down and cast their crowns before. Sometimes we can be barely bothered getting on our feet. They couldn't stay on their feet. They just fell down before God and trembled in the presence of His holiness. We've got to learn to tremble. I'm not talking about being scared. Please hear me. I'm not talking about being terrified of God like He's some cosmic bully like Zeus ready to strike you with a lightning bolt. That's not God. It's not the God of the Bible. When we talk about the holiness of God, when we talk about trembling before God, we're talking about having reverence, having appropriate reverence before God, recognizing who He is and bowing before Him with a holy fear, bowing before him with a deep recognition that we are mortal beings and he is a holy God. And yet we've been brought near through Christ and we can celebrate that. So let me leave you with this one image in your minds. I've found this helpful to think about because the challenge is how do we draw these, these two things together? How do we hold together the love of God and he's so intimate and he's so personal and he's so near and yet the holiness of God. He's transcendent. He's other than us. One image maybe that's helpful for you is to think about Mount Sinai with the cross at the summit. Now, it's not geographically correct. Jesus didn't die on Mount Sinai. There, I don't think there is a cross at the top of Mount Sinai. But theologically, it speaks to this reality that we now come near and yet God is still holy. The cross at the summit represents our invitation to draw near through Christ. And we must never lose sight of that. The cross invites us up the mountain, not to stay at the bottom anymore. Come all the way up into the fire of the presence of God and enjoy being with Father, Son, and Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. We can bask in that. And yet, Sinai reminds us that God is still holy, God is still other, and we are called to worship Him acceptably with reverence and with awe. So let's celebrate this reality that Christ has called us near and given us intimacy with the Father because of His atoning work. But let's be mindful of the holiness of God. Let's recognize as we gather and in our own individual lives and faith that God is holy. He is Yahweh. He is other than us in every possible sense. And He calls us to worship Him acceptably with reverence and awe because He is a consuming fire. He is the Holy One. Let's pray together. Father God, we do so quickly run out of words when we try and describe your holiness. 
So God, I'm not even going to try. I, I just simply ask that you would give us a fresh glimpse into your holiness, into your glory. And yet, God, help us to be reassured that we stand before you clean and pure and holy because of Jesus. Thank you that we are wrapped up in Christ and our identity is in him. Thank you that we have been made holy in him. God, we find it hard to know how to hold all this together, but you don't. There's no contradiction in you. Your holiness is a loving holiness. Your love is a holy love. Teach us to worship you and to tremble in your presence. For Christ's sake. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.